Thanks for joining me on episode 16 of the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm joined by Yvonne Hemming, where we discuss interpersonal therapy, more commonly known as IPT. Yvonne explains what IPT is, in particular the impact current interpersonal relationships have on our mood, the different focal points of interpersonal problems, those being conflict, transition, grief and interpersonal sensitivities, the history of IPT, how IPT has enriched Yvonne's clinical work, how it's been adapted over time, and what we might expect of IPT in the future. If you enjoy today's episode, please feel free to rate and review. Welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm joined by Yvonne Hemmings, consultant clinical psychologist, clinical lead at a number of services in Southwest London, contributing IPT trainer at Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families, and member of IPT UK Executive and Training Committees. Thanks for joining me today. You have a, a range of experience, Yvonne, across a number of services, but today we're going to focus primarily on IPT. Would you mind starting us off by explaining what IPT is? Yeah, absolutely. So IPT started out as a, a therapy for depression, although it's been adapted um, since then. And it's a, a, a therapy that is quite time-limited. It's a therapy that focuses on the here and now, so it's about current problems that are happening for people. But it's also a therapy that focuses specifically on um, our relationships and the impact that our relationships and our interpersonal lives have have on our mood. Uh, It's also quite goal-focused, so similar to other therapies like CBT, I suppose, in in those ways. Uh, And the basic premise of IPT is that uh, we're social creatures, and that means that our brains respond to our social environments. And actually, when things go wrong in our interpersonal lives, so perhaps we've had a, a significant loss or a significant change, um, or we're grieving someone, or we're in conflict for some reason, or perhaps our social relationships aren't satisfactory um, or plentiful enough for one reason or another, that that tends to leave us feeling quite depressed. But then once we're depressed, it can be really difficult to resolve those problems because if you think about the symptoms of depression, there are things like irritability, social withdrawal, uh, thoughts of kind of low self-worth and feelings of low self-worth, lack of motivation. So all of those things make it really difficult then for people to try and make friends or improve their relationships or resolve problems that might have come up. It leaves you feeling isolated and on your own and then kind of compounds a depression so IPT tries to map out those relationships for people and then intervene at an interpersonal level to improve people's relationships and consequently uh, resolve the depression. So it considers the uh, change in relationships to be a core part of what is at least starting the depression and then potentially maintaining it? Exactly. And, and it's one of the reasons, the main reason that we focus then on relationships as they are currently. So lots of relational therapies think about our relationships in the past and how that might impact on how we think about things or how we, we relate to people now. In IPT, we're mainly interested in what are the quality of your relationships right now? What are the problems that are present? And how is that therefore impacting on your, on your mood? And how does it look to conceptualise those problems? Uh, you mentioned a few things there, like the quality of the relationships. Um, what structure might it use for that? So IPT um, is a, a, a 16 session intervention and it has three phases. So the first phase is an, an assessment phase 
which is about four sessions, and that's where we spend time understanding the problem. Then we have a middle phase where we spend time focusing on the problem, and then there's a, a month-long ending phase. Um, and when we're focusing on the problem, we, we work with clients to think about um, where, whether their problems fit best into one of four main focal areas, and we find that pretty much in any interpersonal problem can usually end up uh, being fit into one of these focal areas. So those focal areas are conflict, so being in conflict, ongoing conflict with someone that's significant in your life. It might be a, a marital conflict, for example, conflict with a parent. Um, we have transition, which is about big changes that happen in our lives, so uh, that have been difficult to negotiate. So it might be um, acquiring a long-term health condition, for example, that's been very difficult, or having a baby. Um, or going through a divorce, those sorts of those sorts of things. We have um, grief. So this is where people may have had a bereavement uh, that was really difficult to process for one reason or another. And when grief gets stuck, we know that often leads to depression. And the last focal area uh, we call in the UK interpersonal sensitivities, which uh, is a bit vague, but it, it basically means that someone finds that they repeatedly have problems either building in the first place or maintaining really satisfactory relationships for one reason or another. So then that's that's the only one where it's a little bit more of a patterns focus. We look at, um, are there any things we can do to help you with your communication or your interpersonal behaviours that will support you to improve some of your relationships more generally? So for the most part, they look at where there's a, been a significant adjustment, but that last one is more where it's maybe long-standing interpersonal problems. That's it. And, and generally, historically, we, we, most most of the time, one of those other three focal areas um, are, are useful and, and can be used. And the last one, uh, in the US particularly, they tend to avoid the last one a, a bit more. In the UK, we use it more often. Um, but yeah, generally, it's about an event that's happened in our interpersonal lives, but occasionally, usually where it's recurrent depression and people find they keep falling into to the same pattern that's when sensitivities can be helpful. I'm wondering why there's uh, such a difference between the US approach versus the UK approach. I think they're quite long-standing differences and, and I suppose as, as therapies get disseminated there's always a, a bit of diversion and there are kind of cultural differences. Um, I think in the US uh, it, it, in the manual it's framed as interpersonal deficits which is a Sort of the language that we tend not to use so much in the UK that I suppose there's a sort of uh, cultural difference in how that language feels but also uh, I think in, originally in the manual sensitivities wasn't intended to be a focal area that was always being used it was intended as a if the others don't fit this might kind of option um, and in the UK uh, clinicians have just started to use it more often and also found it helpful um, we're about to do some work looking at uh, some of the trainees that we've had come out of the Anna Freud Centre to see are there any differences in outcomes if you've used a sensitivities focus compared to some of those other focuses and um, to see if that's been a helpful change. And is there much of a difference in the interventions that you use if you're taking a more sensitivity approach versus a conflict or transition or grief? Um, there are things that are the same across all of the focal areas. So generally all of the areas will involve um, some focus on understanding emotions so understanding emotion as a a social cue and helping people to learn to 
notice, name and communicate their emotions in order to be able to process them. Um, all of the focal areas involve um, a review, something called communication analysis, a review of little bits of interactions uh, where we go through in lots of detail. What did they say? And then what did you say? And then what did they say? And how did they look? And what was their tone of voice like at that moment? And what were they doing with their hands? And wh- where were you? And lots of detail to start to help people to think about where did that go wrong? And what might I have done to have taken that interaction in a different direction? So there's lots of these moment by moment kind of narrative moments, I suppose, to look at the real detail of what happens in relationships and then help people to role play and script alternatives and lots of skills based practice. And all of the focal areas um, involve that. But the, the differences are more that if you're, for example, doing a piece of work around a big change or a, a grief, you might do much more emotional processing around a loss than would be necessary often if you're doing a kind of marital conflict that's ongoing. Sometimes it's some of that too, but the balance of those activities changes. And when you're doing sensitivities, what we do more of is look at examples of communications um, across a wider range of relationships. The others are much more specific. So if we're doing a conflict, we would really mainly be interested in the interactions with the main um, protagonist in the conflict rather than everyone in the network, which is more common in in sensitivities. It sounds somewhat like um, cognitive analytical theory, CAT. I'm not sure if you're aware of CAT, but it just sounds quite similar. It's kind of short-term, present-focused, kind of divided into three sections, um, focusing on the, I guess, the interpersonal dynamics. Although with CAT, I think you look at a more longitudinal developmental approach. Would I be right in thinking that, if I... I, I'm not an expert in CAT. I've certainly heard it said before, um, but but I'm, I'm not enough of an expert to comment on that. What is it about IP that you think is helpful, whether it's feedback that you get from your clients or from your own perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think there are um, a, a, a number of things. From, from the perspective of a clinician, the thing I really like about IPT is that it it, it really looks at someone's life quite holistically we live we live in groups we generally don't live in our heads um, and our relationships are really important to us and so you spend lots of time developing stories about people's um, social and interpersonal lives which feels quite rich the material always feels quite rich um, but what it does is helps people build relationships so that when you step out at the end of therapy, as you will in any time-limited therapy, what you have is a network of people around the, the client who now understand the depression and have been involved in some of the work and are able to take that person forward. So you really feel like you're leaving people with a with a, a lifeboat or a, a newly built ship in a way that you, they don't need you anymore. And I think that's a, that's a really nice thing about IPT. As far as I'm aware, it's one of the the most significant indicators for health problems later in life is our social networks. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. There's been all sorts of research looking at the quality of our relationships and the impact on our mental health and our physical health, longevity, um, all sorts of things. And actually, um, IPT came out of, part of, partly came out of an acknowledgement that our brain's really do respond to our environments and we are social beings and um, so the, the, the more functionally we're able to um, 
live our lives within social groups, the healthier we're going to be. You just mentioned there about where it came from, Yvonne. Bon. Can you give us a little bit about its background? Because I'm aware that it's a relatively young therapy. I mean, in fact, it's quite old, um, uh, but it's young in terms of dissemination. So it was developed, um, started being developed in the 60s. So it started life as a, a, a psychotherapy condition, I think, in a kind of pharmacotherapy versus um, a psychotherapy research study in RCT back in 1969, I think it was. And that Gerald Clerman and uh, Aaron Beck were colleagues. They knew each other. They were psychiatrists and they were both writing their manuals around the same time. Um, but what then happened was that uh, IPT got stuck a bit in research centres. So I've seen it written somewhere that by the mid-90s there were no more papers about IPT than there were IPT therapists because it was being led by um, by researchers primarily. It wasn't being led by a group of people that were um, skilled in dissemination. Um, also, Gerald Clement died in 1992, which interfered a bit with, um, with, with dissemination. And the other lead author, Myrna Weissman, was, Jerry and Myrna were married. And so there was a sort of grief and interpersonal event in the dissemination of um, IPT, which slowed it down. And so... CBT kind of really got disseminated and IPT got a bit halted. But in terms of its research base, it's 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 pretty old and, and very well evidence based by this point. It seems to be um of when I worked in the UK in IAP services, um with CBT taking the lion's share of um the space for therapy on offer, IPT was one of those ones that was it was in the service I worked in, at least, one of the few alternatives that was on offer. Why do you think that might be that it seems to have gained a bit of space in the world of IAP? It's the um, second kind of evidence-based first-line in- intervention for depression. So if, when you think about the interventions that are provided by by IAPT, and IAPT are asked to follow nice guidance for the, for the anxiety disorders, CBT is really the only option and um, for uh, PTSD EMDR I guess is is the other option and for depression there are a few other options but IPT CBT and behavioral activation are the kind of frontline frontline offers and for that reason I think IAPT were keen to once they'd got IAPT established and got CBT rolling and you know it made sense to start with CBT and um, IPT seemed like a sensible um, next step I think and so that's one of the reasons why the UK has done quite well um, at developing an IPT workforce relative to other places because it's had the IAPT programme to, to support in terms of funding. When it comes to treatment, um, given the interpersonal relationships that are such a large part of it, I'm wondering how much you get, how much clients get their friends or partners or family members involved in the therapy. So one I mentioned earlier that there are adaptations, and one of the adaptations is IPTA or IPT for adolescents. And in IPTA, um, so it's it's aimed at twelve to eighteen year olds. Although uh, in practice, we know that adolescence neuropsychologically lasts much longer than eighteen. So uh, you might be using it with with younger adults too. And as part of that model, it's actually a twelve session model, but it then has three family sessions, and there you're inviting. Uh, usually parents and guardians into, into sessions 
um, for additional work. So that's a much a very structured way of involving family, and is obviously very relevant when you've got a young person who's still who's still living at home. Um, I think for IPT, we've started to really try and learn from that because we've seen how useful it can be. So I certainly much more routinely offer um, for people in the network to come into sessions. So we ask when people engage in IPT, we ask them to think about who are their team, who are the people around them that are going to support them through this journey, who knows that they're in therapy, who knows that they're depressed, who can help them with the things that are difficult for them because they're not so well right now, um, who can help them practice the things that we're going to be talking about. And it can be helpful sometimes to have those members of the team come into sessions to learn a bit more about the depression or the formulation or understand what the goals might be just to try and support the person you're working with to, to engage their network. So it's not a it's not a necessity in doing IPT with adults, but it's I think a helpful thing to to include. I, I'm wondering um if if it's something that you come across where people are at a stage in their life where their social network is so small it's uh, or their support network or their interpersonal network is so small that it's it's really hard to find, you know, find a, sh- a way in to engage with others and to start to build some momentum from there. Yeah, absolutely. And and when we use sensitivities, sometimes that's that's the case. Quite commonly, might see people who have really very few people in their in their life. Um, although it can also happen as a result of a transition. You know, if you've been a a carer for the last ten years of your life really focus on one person and that person then passes away you might come away and notice well I used to have all these people around me and actually I've been really focused on this one person for this time so you see it at other times too and we we still work with that but the the requirement really is that the person you're working with um, has goals about improving and increasing the number of people in their in their interpersonal network and that they're prepared to do that work so it's harder and it's slower um, and what you might achieve might be uh, you might need to adapt I guess the expectations a bit within 16 sessions but um, the work might then be much more about where can you meet people how do you make friends what does that look like how's it going you know how did that how did that first coffee date go were there awkward moments should we go through it you know so we kind of um support people to develop the skills they need to, to, to make new friends. And actually, in the we were really worried when we went into the pandemic about how that would go. Uh, but actually, it was interesting because everything went online. So suddenly, it was quite ordinary to go onto Facebook and find a Facebook group or look at meetup groups and see what's gone online. So there are all sorts of ways that you can support people to, to do that. And we'd absolutely do that work. But you do need buy-in, obviously. You mentioned earlier about some of the ways that it's been adapted uh, since it started, whereas when it started, it was focused mainly on adults with depression, but now it's used for adolescents and I guess not just depression, but also interpersonal problems. Is there any other ways outside of that that it's um, it's been adapted? Yeah, there, there are lots of ways and uh, some have been more successful than others. Um, there is uh, the more successful ones, I think, are there's a, a an adaptation for PTSD, as an adaptation for eating disorders, which was in the NICE guidance, fell out of it um, for some reason, uh, but is, is nonetheless uh, still got a reasonable evidence base behind it. Um, there's a version called IPSRT, 
interpersonal social rhythms therapy, which has um, been shown really effective with bipolar disorder. Um, there are some other versions. There's a version for um, borderline personality disorder. There were attempts to make some versions for things like for some anxiety disorders, although it doesn't seem as effective with anxiety problems, or we haven't found a way to adapt it to make it as effective as something like CBT, for example. Um, there are also some cultural adaptations. So there are really interesting group manuals for um, Ethiopia, I think there's one for Uganda, um, and the World Health Organization recommends IPT as an intervention for depression and has a, a group manual for non-mental health experts on its on its website. So there are a number of ways that IPT has tried to um, adapt to the kind of cultural norms of wherever it is that it's being delivered. Because so I imagine that could be quite significant if how people interact might vary quite differently from one country to the next. Absolutely. And I think wherever you're delivering it, you need to be really thoughtful, not just about what's ordinary social behaviour for the person you're working with, but also the network. And then be really conscious about how your cultural norms and values may be similar or different to the person you're working with. Um, you always need to be thoughtful about that. A few moments ago, you mentioned that it, it doesn't seem to be as effective for anxiety disorders as opposed to maybe things like depression. Why do you think that is? What's the difference in the mechanisms of change that means that maybe CBT is better suited to um, treat anxiety than IPT? I'm not sure. I mean, I one of the things I, I'm a CBT therapist too. So one of the things I notice about the adaptations is that if you look at CBT for social phobia, for example, it's totally different to CBT for depression or CBT for um, health anxiety. So the models that you use and the way you deliver CBT really varies quite quite a lot. Whereas I think IPT, when it's been applied to these other um, diagnoses, hasn't hasn't been adapted uh, quite as totally. And I and I wonder if actually we just we just haven't done a, a good job yet of working out what are the kind of social maintaining factors that you need to focus on in some of those anxiety disorders. Um, I have other theories about, you know, um, how you might use uh, your social network helpfully and unhelpfully in anxiety disorders. Um, I think, uh, and you know, a CBT therapist, for example, you can you can engage in really unhelpful reassurance seeking, which feels good when you're anxious about something, but doesn't necessarily help you to feel better. And I wonder if IPT has necessarily made those distinctions well enough. We don't know yet, and so I think it's something for, for the IPT community to look at and research over, over time. You could definitely see how it could be adapted to look at, because I guess my take, my, what I gather from it is that it's kind of change-based with a real emphasis on how your relationships can accommodate that change or give you something to work towards. So change-based, value-based, but with a strong emphasis on values in the context of other people. Um, would that be right, Yvonne? Uh, would that be a... A reasonable overview of what IPT is. Yeah, I think I think so. I think it's uh, we, we probably don't. It's definitely change based. Um, we don't always think explicitly about about values, but it's but it's certainly about ensuring that people have good, strong, healthy connections with the people around them. But I could definitely see how that could be applied to 
anxiety disorders where, as you say, people can be helping them in the short term, but not in the long term, reassurance seeking, you know, doing things for them rather than being an advocate for exposure or whatever they might be doing that their CBT therapist might be recommending them to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think we, we just probably need to be a bit more thoughtful about how we adapt IPT for those for those disorders. Um, it's really interesting because IPT for PTSD doesn't do any exposure work at all and yet does have um, a reasonably good evidence base in the few RCTs that, that have happened. You know, it's, it, it has similar outcomes to CBT and it actually does much better engaging people. So what they found... Um, when they tested this a few years ago, they compared CBT and IPT for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. What they found was that they were, CBT performed slightly better, but it wasn't a statistically significant improvement. But what IPT was much better at was keeping people in treatment and had a much lower dropout rate, especially where there was a comorbid depression. But in that, it focuses much more on the interpersonal um maintaining factors of post-traumatic stress disorder so if you think in post-traumatic stress disorder there's often lots of mistrust about people around us there might be lots of anger and irritation which could interfere with our relationships might be lots of avoidance and hypervigilance in social relationships and IPT focuses more on helping people to um, problem solve through those things and actually what we find is that people end up being able to process their, their trauma without doing any explicit um, memory work, especially doing CBT. So I, I suspect there are adaptations, but we just haven't found them yet for some of the other anxiety disorders. Given that you work, or part of your work is in IAPT services, I'm wondering, and because of my own experience as a CBT therapist first and foremost, and then I went on to train in EMDR and um become more aware of a lot of other services I found that IAP where I was working at least you know it was all CBT therapists so it can be somewhat of an echo chamber in the ideas that are put out there and I found say learning about EMDR that it was uh, kind of mind-blowing in ways because it sees things from a very different perspective I'm wondering what kind of feedback you get from um, if you work with clinicians that are primarily trained in CBT that go on to do the IPT training what they might say about it how it's maybe changed how they see their clinical work or how they approach their work? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've been in IAPT for 10 years, over 10 years now, so I've seen lots of change over that over that time. And I think what we've done in the last few years in IAPT services is increase the choice or work towards increasing the choice of evidence-based therapies. So generally, it's less of an echo chamber than it, than it was, but I do remember that, that feeling. Um, I train CBT therapists. I also train people from humanistic or psychodynamic um, perspectives too, and they tend to struggle with different things. So CBT therapists often really struggle with the switch from thinking about the intrapersonal. So CBT therapists might notice um, low self-esteem, for example, or negative thoughts about the self and, and feel quite uncomfortable about not necessarily doing anything with that. An IPT therapist would frame that in the context of a relationship and think about, well, how does that thought impact on the relationship and let's intervene in the relationship, whereas a CBT therapist would try and change the thought. So for CBT therapists, it's often a, a bit of a kind of stretch to kind of learn a new way of, of thinking about it. But that's, you know, that's a transition. I, I had, although I trained as a psychologist, I was mainly CBT um, focused. 
usually when I work with counsellors or people from humanistic or psychodynamic backgrounds, they're they're much more able to to um, much more comfortable with that affect focus in IPT. So they can they're, they're able to sit with emotions. They're able to think about how you process an emotion, and um, without necessarily doing anything to the thought. So they're able to do that part of the work, but find the kind of pace and structure uh, and the action focus a bit more of a shift. So there's there's usually a bit of a shift whatever perspective you've you've come from. No, I, I definitely found uh, similar with uh, EMDR, but it's I just find it so useful to have more and more therapies. It's it's like um I kinda liken it to the more you have it's like the more languages you can speak and when you become fluent not to say that I'm fluent, but the more you can pick up on it, you pick up on things a bit better and I just find that you're so better equipped and you can, you know, change gear depending on what you need to do. So um, yeah, I'd really recommend, yeah, trying to broaden the, the interventions you can use as much as possible. Yeah, I like the language analogy. And I, I think it's because I think when you learn a new therapy, having come from one particular modality, it feels a bit clunky and you find yourself translating everything in a way. And eventually you come to think in the new therapy and that's when it, Absolutely, that's when you achieve that fluency, which feels which feels very helpful. But it can also then translate across to some of the other therapies. I'm wondering how accessible IPT is in the UK at the moment. Um, I think it's less. You, you talked a bit about the CBT workforce. I think um, it, IPT is is not a, a key component of psychology trainings, for example. Um, it's not a key component uh, yet of any, you know, you can't just train to be an IPT therapist, you need to have trained as something else first, and then you learn IPT. Um, So for that reason, there aren't as many IPT therapists as there are counsellors or CBT therapists. Um, And so I I suspect it's it's not as accessible uh, as as we'd like it to be, and, and particularly outside of primary care, you know, I have to have done a lot to try and increase its accessibility in primary care. But outside of primary care, I think it's much less accessible at the moment. If if there's a CBT therapist out there, or a psychologist who hasn't trained in it, how might you sell it to them? You know, how might you suggest that this would be a really good intervention to add to your set of skills? Well, you know, I'm a I'm an empiricist at heart, so. Uh, for me, I wanted to train in IPT because of the evidence base, you know, and I wanted to be able to offer people choice. And if someone has depression, the choices are really the first line choices are CBT, behavioural activation, and IPT. And I, I could deliver CBT. I learned to deliver behavioural activation as a standalone intervention. Um, and then I was very interested to learn IPT and I. So did a bit of training in EMDR, James, for, for the same reason, although I've, I've not been able to keep that up in between everything else. Um, so, so I think that's, I think if you want to offer your, your patients choice, evidence-based choice, then IPT is a sensible, um, sensible therapy to have in your armoury. With the number of evidence-based therapies out there, let's say like mentioned CAT earlier, DBT, schema therapy, I'm wondering what how IPT will fit into the future of therapy. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that there are there are some uh, pilot schemes happening at the moment, which Health Education England are looking at, which is about training high intensity therapists in IAPT um, 
from scratch in relational therapy. So we've done that before with CBT therapists, but we've not ever done that with IPT therapists and other relational therapies, such as dynamic interpersonal therapy. So uh, I think schemes like that will mean that we'll start to see an increase in the workforce. Uh, IAP services are really working on broadening choice and expanding workforce. So I think we'll see an increase in, in IPT therapists there. I'm not sure how it grows outside of IAPs. And I think that's the, you know, the funding at the moment is in primary care for this kind of expansion. So um, I'd like to see more of it outside of primary care. But I think I think we need systemic support for that. I appreciate that probably most, even EMDR, people that are trained in EMDR, the majority of them probably come from IAP services because they're CBD therapists and that's where the majority of the funding goes. And But I do imagine that you know, therapy can be hard to deliver. And if you've only got one modality like CBT that is there to be used for a very broad spectrum of people, um, there might be times you're thinking, mm, I wonder if there's something else that would make this a bit more helpful. And that's one part reason why I trained in EMDR. So I'm sure people would be feeling quite similar, thinking, oh, maybe IPT could be helpful. I know in the service I worked, and I think there was only one person trained in it. And uh, for the most part, I think that if someone had CBT and uh, CBT for depression and they weren't finding it particularly helpful we might refer them to them but my, for the majority it was where there was an interpersonal problem that was that seemed to be sustaining the um, the depression would that be the, the correct way to to be referring someone for with those kind of presentations I think so I mean I think we get a, a bit overly caught up sometimes as therapists and think trying to work out ourselves in our own head which therapy is going to be best for this this particular client? And in practice, um, you know, we're not very good at that. <laughs> Actually, our predictions about who will respond and who won't respond, you know, there's, there's no evidence that, that we're, we're fantastic about that as clinicians. And actually, that's what we know is that uh, if someone has depression, if you offer them a psychological therapy, one of the ones I've listed, or... Uh, pharmacotherapy alone the same number of people will get better if you offer people a combination more of that group get better and um, and uh, actually there's something about there's something about which therapy people engage in so um if your goals are about if you if you present saying i'm depressed and i'm depressed because my marriage is in a is in a state and i don't know my way out of it your goals are likely to be around resolving the problems in the marital relationship. And in that case, IPT makes sense because it's geared up to focus on that particular goal. And if, if your problem is, if you're presenting saying, I'm really depressed, I don't know, I've been on my own during lockdown and I've, I've gradually been doing less and less and I, I'd like to get back going again, but you know, I'm, I'm not sure how to do that. Then something like behavioural activation might might feel like an easy fit into how the person's describing their goal. So I think there's something about just offering people an informed choice about what they'd like to do. And as you say, if you've got that choice to offer, that, that becomes much easier. I'm wondering, is it particularly helpful for couples, like couples counselling or couples therapy, given how it spends quite a bit of time focusing on the interactions you have? Is that something that it's used for? Um. There is a there was a, I have seen a paper about a, a couple's adaptation, but broadly I don't think there's there's lots about that. Um, 
it's really important to remember that when you're delivering an individual therapy, um, it, it's quite difficult to, to deliver that. It's difficult to deliver IPT to two people together. So, um, because you're very definitely on the, on the side of, <laughs> if I can put it that way, um, the person that's coming to see you, right? They're, they're your therapist, the person, they're your patient or their therapist, the person that's coming to see you for depression. So when you bring someone else in, it's very difficult to then move into a, an objective mediating stance, which is a stance that you want to take if you're doing couples therapy and, and both the people in front of you are your, uh, your, your patients, your clients, or whatever language you, you prefer to use. So, um, it is different to couples therapy in that way. I think the other thing is that the focus is really on improving depression. So we, in IPT, we talk about depression as an illness. It's quite a medicalized, um, description of depression. And what we say is, um, you have this, this illness. Depression is an illness. You have it, it affects lots of people. It's often caused by things in our environment. And um, we believe that if we can support you to resolve this problem, your depression will improve. And then you're helping that person to resolve the problem themselves rather than being part of that intervention, if that makes sense. It's slightly different to couples therapy where the uh, focus might be more on resolving the problem specifically rather than any symptoms in any one person. For people out there that are listening in that would like to learn more about IPT, Yvonne, have you got a preferred book for IPT for beginners or even podcasts or maybe YouTube or TED Talks, where people can find out more about IPT? Yes, there aren't, lot, there aren't lots of um, quick explanations, but if you, if you Google IPT into, um, into YouTube, there are a couple of videos uh, where Myrna Weissman, who's one of the authors of IPT, describes IPT in a nutshell. There's a, a book called um, A Quick Clinician's Guide, which is getting old now, but it's really short. Um, and so it's quite a nice uh, overview of how you might deliver an intervention. So if your therapist thinking about um, beginning IPT, I think that's quite a nice, easy, accessible book to start with. And also Rosalind Law, who's the the uh, the, the lead um, trainer at uh, at the Anna Freud Centre, she's written a book, a couple of books. One of the books is called Defeating Depression, which is a self help uh, book based on IPT and that also is a really accessible way of learning about IPT or if you're someone that's struggling with depression is interested in some of the ideas we've talked about today that would be a really good place um, to, to go to start to learn a bit about it. That's all we have time for today Yvonne but I really appreciate your time and I think you did a great job of explaining IPT. <laughs> great thanks it's great to meet you. <laughs>